Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz. This is episode 31, and I am joined by, you guessed it, Dimitri Kaligan. How are you doing, man? <laughs> doing great. It's been a it's been a wonderful few weeks, you know, but definitely missed uh the analysis, missed World War Now, missed the additional episodes and all the breakdowns on Twitter that we do and of course the additions to the Substack. It's yeah, a lot has happened in the last two and a half, three weeks. So I think there's a lot to break down today. And a great episode you had of GSP last time. I, you know, we appreciate his input, I think. Uh definitely a lot to break down and just over the past few nights, I think, just going to bed reading the news. There's just so much happening in Ukraine, Russia at the moment. There's some really intense firefights going on, which, you know, after so long, after the fall of Bakhmut, there's been this sort of quiet period, but definitely a lot of news to discuss as well as some, you know, absolutely insane international uh, events occurring at the moment. So let's break it down. Yeah, so many things going on, you know, Patrushev, really, his words and some things from Putin and Medvedev are shifting, you know, how we've been considering the special military operation. Right before we say that, though, if you want to hear maybe about where Dimitri was these past few weeks, be sure to check out episode nine of Ether Hour. He you know, mentions it a little bit and all of that. We talk about China and orthodoxy in Asia and everything. It's a great episode. So be sure to tune into that on the premium on the Substack. But we're here with the analysis, the, you know, Ukraine's counteroffensive. That's kind of what we're here to discuss first. It's kind of what's all in the news. Of course, we're going to be getting into the whole gambit in Ukraine and Russia. And then, you know, we're going to go eastwards as well and maybe do a little schizo posting. But, you know, just like we had GSP do the minutia minute again, thanks to him, we're, you know, what is, uh, what's kind of going on along the front lines? Like, has the offensives really started? Like, is that what we're seeing? Well, I think what we're seeing is just the first sort of the first rains of autumn here in in the Zaporozhye region. The finally, the long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive has, I think, begun somewhat in earnest. Especially since we're hearing about Ukrainian Western, you know, German as well as uh, you know European-funded Leopard tanks crossing the border into Russian Russian territory, Zaporozhye, and finally attacking the Russian defense lines. And we've spoken about. The Zaporozhye Oblast, the Zaporozhye region, as being the only viable, I suppose, avenue of attack by the Ukrainian army. So if Ukraine wanted to somehow escalate the conflict and push the Russians out of what they perceive as their sovereign land, where exactly would they strike? And I think not just ourselves, but also most of the analysts online have, of course, come to the agreement that Zaporozhye, having this large stretch of land between the Dnieper River, which runs all across Ukraine, to Donetsk, there's this just large stretch of you know, flat, mostly mostly field lands, not many hills, not many mountains. You can easily drive mechanized brigades through this land territory, carry troops through, the tanks could easily move. And of course, it being sort of that time in the year, uh, the snow has melted and the mud has kind of settled. You can easily drive a few mechanized brigades through the area. And so... What we're seeing over the last, uh, I believe, three to four days is the Ukrainians have, in fact, begun attacking or at least harassing the Russian lines. And to the point where I believe Minister of Defense uh, Shoigu has officially reported, and this is, I guess, as official as the news can get from the Russian side, he says that the Ukrainian forces from Ukraine's 47th Mechanized Brigade with up to 1,500 troops and 150 armored vehicles made an attempt to break through. Uh, between the Dnieper River around the Orokiv village, which is uh, situated just to the west of Donetsk. So it's more closer to the river Dnieper than it is to Donetsk geographically, if you're looking at it. So the Ukrainians did, of course, attempt to break through, and they were, uh, you know, fortunately stopped by the Russian side. Now, I guess 
Uh, now, what exactly the Russian used, what, what kind of um, defense mechanisms did the Russians use, Conrad? I'm sure like there's a lot of news regarding that. Well, the people have been observing for weeks now the satellite images of just the sheer layer of trenches and defenses that Russia set up in Kherson and Zaporozhye in particular. And people, I love the NAFO posters of talking always about the Maginot Line and how all oh, the Nazis just went around the Maginot Line. It's like, first of all, where I don't know what your analogous analogy for Belgium is in the situation with Ukraine. I saw some hilarious maps of people drawing like an arrow around the entire, you know, Luhansk, Donetsk, banana, and they marched through all of Luhansk and Donetsk and ambushed the Zaporozhye troops from behind. Um, that has nothing to do with what happened in the Maginot Line. I think even even normie historians admit that the Maginot Line probably would have worked if they had, you know, just extended it all the way to the ocean. So it's, I guess maybe it's this continuation of this walls don't work cope from that we've heard since 2016. But in general, I mean, part of, I think, the reason we also saw the Ukrainians asking for so, so hard for the F-16s, you know, from the Netherlands, from Denmark, from the U.S. is... The, the all the air defenses, you know, obviously focused around Kiev and some of these decision-making centers. And Russians have really established air superiority all along this front line. They're able to act with obviously their drones are able to act with impunity. They're able to have their planes operating much more freely than they had in the past. And I mean, we've seen these videos of these what the Ukrainians are calling these probing forces of you know, hundred fifty, you know, three hundred even in some cases guys across these open fields just getting lit up. And that report from Shoigu. Of 1500 that comes after a report of 3500 having already been uh, taken out and by taken out i mean that's dead or injured you know that's not just 3500 kia confirmed but i mean these are you know these are early i think offensive numbers i mean these are probing forces trying to make a breakthrough but you know the more they use of these and no breakthroughs are done that's you know those are a lot of dead so i think as many have said this is already the ukrainians are going to continue to act like the counteroffensive hasn't officially started until they get their breakthrough and can take their images and have their Ukrainian flag at the center or at the sign of some Russian, you know, some occupied town. And I think that leads us into the really other big thing about this is the destruction of the Novaya Kakovka Dam, which, you know, I noticed, you know, I was up following it right when it happened, and I immediately noticed Reuters was the first to publish an article about it, immediately citing... Vladimir Leontiev, the mayor of Novaya Kakovka, casting doubt on his accusation against the Ukrainians, immediately casting suspicion on the Russians, taking Zelensky then at his word that because the, you know, major infrastructure side of the Novaya Kakovka dam, like Novaya Kakovka, the town itself, was on the Russian side of the dam, they said that's ironclad proof that this was, that this was a Russian operation, despite multiple quotes from the Washington Post in 2022 of Ukrainian leaders talking about blowing up the dam, talking about shooting HIMARS at it, all these sorts of things. I believe Putin even submitted a request to the UN about the Novaya Kakovka dam saying that the Ukrainians were going to blow it up. And as far as who benefits from this goes, of course, in the Kherson region, which is now being flooded, the majority of the flooded regions are ultimately on the Russian occupied side. And we're seeing what will ultimately lead to the minefields and these trenches being kind of rendered less effective by the waters washing the mines away, filling up the trenches with mud and whatnot. So again, there is, obviously there's no confirmed video evidence of one side or the other doing the terrorism on the bridge, but between that and the fact that Ukraine seems to be pumping 
a lot of water downstream from their dams that they do control up the Dnieper, I think it's pretty clear that uh, this was a Kiev operation, if not a Kiev operation directly assisted by NATO, the U.S., the U.K., or whoever else may have felt they wanted to do this. Yeah, and just, uh, I suppose, Nova Kochovka, of course, the village being controlled by the Russian side would, of course, specify that, you know, there was there are no eyewitness reports of the dam actually being destroyed. So it does put point towards maybe like a 007 SBU covert, you know, C4 planting bomb sort of operation going on here. It's not like the Ukrainians fired direct artillery shells. It's most likely some sort of uh, uh, explosives were set up on the dam itself and blown up in the middle of the night. So, in fact, this is probably one of the first huge... Uh, I guess, shows of ecological weaponry that we've seen, or at least like uh, using the ecology, using the land in order to fight the war. Um, you know, we heard claims early on of the Russians attempting to, you know, according to the Ukrainian sources, they were attempting to, you know, destabilize the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. But in fact, this is the one of the one of the first, I suppose, massive threats to the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, which is roughly only 100 kilometers, or if not less, maybe 80 kilometers north of the Novokohovka Dam. So just up the, the Dnieper River there, again, controlled by the Russians. So in fact, uh, the real threat to the nuclear power plant is this uh, destabilization of the river, which is why, you know, which is uh, reminiscent of the Fukushima power plant disaster in Japan where they couldn't, you know, control the cooling and it ended up polluting almost, you know, a large portion of the Pacific Ocean, etc. And of course, a lot of Japanese people suffered. But it does, uh, you know, it does call towards caution for both Ukrainians and Russians handling the situation. It's like, firstly, these nuclear power plants need to be secured because if some sort of uh, breakdown of chemicals occurs, there's really no way anybody wins there, uh, you know, regardless of who... Uh, takes that territory in the end properly annexes it and uh you know wh whoever ends up winning there um you know will probably <laughs> will have to deal with the consequences and uh suffer from them and of course there's the other angle of the ecological warfare is the crimean the crimean water shortage so crimea was known for uh having a lack of spring water this is going back into the 17th 18th centuries which is why peter the great in the 1700s had huge trouble marching his forces through Zaporozhye and actually logistically speaking he couldn't really uh, even though Peter the Great did fight the Swedes at Poltava and he participated very actively in the Ukrainian region fighting against the various enemies of Russia but he could never really take Crimea and one of the reasons was because of the lack of spring water and logistically speaking Crimea does lack spring water so it depends upon these spring water uh, sources at, in the Dnieper located and of course controlled by these dams which control the pipelines leading essentially siphoning uh, all this fresh water used by the residents of Crimea into the Russian territory now with the dam going down this of course uh, threatens the again threatens the well-being and the and the health of the Crimean citizens who you know formerly Russian formerly Ukrainians now allegedly Russians uh, as per the you know the, the current uh, sovereignty layout but Nevertheless, you do have this factor of, you know, essentially civilians and innocent people being affected by the various ecological disasters going on here in the Ukraine. So, uh, and this is despite, you know, this is not even mentioning, nevertheless mentioning all the various flooding and the actual village footage, the footages that we're seeing on both the Ukrainian and the Russian sides, animals getting hurt. At least eight people have been declared dead already due to, you know, uh, essentially passing away, being killed by the flooding waters. So whoever caused the flooding has already taken... Uh, several innocent lives and you know probably many more re recorded missing and we'll see if they ended up uh, end up getting saved it's a lot harder of course saving people amidst the war in the middle of a war zone so 
really huge implications there, I think, for both sides. And, you know, there are, there are of course, calls from the Orthodox Church, which are very positive. We've seen Orthodox priests and bishops actually assist people on the Russian side. You know, uh, they're a bit too cautious crossing the Dnieper and actually assisting the Ukrainians. But fortunately, the Ukrainians have also, of course, uh, kind of lent uh, an olive branch. We saw um, very heavy PR footage of an, uh, the, the head rabbi of the uh, of the Ukrainian Jewish community actually traveling to, Nov- to the opposite uh, beach uh to the opposite beachhead of Novokhovka and actually personally assisting some of the Ukrainians in need so that a lot of sides have been using this as an opportunity to sort of show their, I guess, uh, humanitarian aid capabilities. And, you know, I guess this is all for the best. So we'll be kind of looking at this region and seeing exactly how the impact of the floodwaters will uh, affect the uh, the rest of the conflict. But at the moment, it is, uh, the implications are not entirely clear as to, you know, where this will all lead. And I guess I would compare this kind of to the Kerch Bridge destruction as far as the, you know, escalatory and kind of dramatic level. And again, I, I would also wager that this has something to do with the fact that, you know, Ukraine for a day or two at the time of the destruction of this dam, I think, had been probing and sending their spearheads in and not getting anything. And so I think they, you know, just like Plankton and SpongeBob, they operated plan uh Plan Z. I guess that's not an appropriate analogy when Z is the Russians, but he he operated. They operated Plan Y, and you know flooded <laughs> flooded the Kherson region, and the Crimea water crisis has obviously been ongoing since 2014. Since the Ukrainians have been denying the Crimeans water since they decided they wanted to join Russia in their referendum, but again the the benefit of the flooding I think really is towards the Ukrainians, and that's not even to get into the fact that they literally admitted to wanting to do this in the Washington Post multiple times. But, and Shoigu has also supported this, said that the dam was mined by the enemy, so as far as the Russians are concerned, they this was the Ukrainians. But we also saw Metropolitan Yohan Kasperivskaya of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. He led a procession with the icon of the Mother of God in the outskirts of the Kherson region in places that I believe are flooded now. So he was in areas right before they got flooded, making sure the people were out and, you know, blessing the streets there before rising waters. So the, the schismatics, I didn't really see them doing anything as far as videos go. So that's not surprising. They don't really run towards the danger as far as I've seen. But yeah, this is, uh, it definitely will be, I mean, I think we're going to have to see what happens when the waters recede and where the Ukrainians want to move in across, you know, this former floodplain. And if the Russians having to clear out is enough for them to really move across the Dnieper and, you know, establish a bridgehead and, you know, take back more territory. The thing is, outside of Kherson city itself, which they already control, we discussed this before, you know, the 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 government of Kherson is on the opposite side on the ocean from the region in this tiny town. There's not even that many strategic centers. The biggest thing you get is you get to Melitopol and Zaporozhye, which, as far as the front line is concerned, is farther away from the front line than Zaporozhye is on the other side. So the Ukrainians are going to have to push really far. And this is all on top of the fact that they're not only are they, you know, coping about their so far failed spearheads and counteroffensive, they've also been coping about supposedly seized towns in the Belgorod region, which you know they've they they sent in these poles and these ukrainians and these supposed russian freedom fighting forces but i mean i've even just watching patrick lancaster and some other journalists that are right on the border in some of these towns in belgorod some of there's uh 
there are no Ukrainians right now, I believe, in the in Russia, the entire front line there. The border is secure. No more forces have been brought in there. And if I'm not mistaken, Dmitry, I think a lot of Wagner forces have been moved towards Belgorod as we have finally seen the Russian military take its place on the full front line of the war. And they've been relocated to this other area for territorial defense because the Ukrainians have been, you know, I think they've done enough to where the Russians at least have to take the possibility of a spearhead into there seriously. I think it's also quite positive. Of course, the forces of Wagner have been involved in this long, grueling siege about seven months long. So, in fact, uh, moving you know several hundreds of them into the Bryansk and Belgorod regions would, of course, be I guess counted as recre almost recreational time because they get to rest up, heal, you know, visit the local hospitals, obtain first aid, and just kind of relax after this long, grueling siege of Bakhmut. And now, in fact, it, it is very interesting because. We, sp we predicted and spoke about the potential harassment tactics that the Ukrainians will use around the Bryansk, Belgorod, Russian, or, you know, the regions of the Russian Federation prior to a potential counteroffensive, you know. Uh, and in fact, this has been mirrored by several people, including Prigozhin himself, also cautioned the Russians to actually protect their own border. And Igor Strelkov, I think, very explicitly mentioned that the Ukrainians prior to a counteroffensive operation will you know, move their forces, maybe slightly use a, a tactical harassment, uh, you know, strategies in order to uh, distract the Russians on the Belgorod and Bryansk fronts. And what do we see here? In reality, a week and a half ago, the Belgorod operation took place and, you know, a lot of civilians got hurt, but mainly the Russians were, if anything, only distracted temporarily. And, you know, the timing by the Ukrainians wasn't too good because if we're, what we're seeing right now is the beginning of the proper counteroffensive. It doesn't exactly align with what occurred about a week and a half ago. If anything, the Novokohovka dam being destroyed is a much larger distraction for the Russian side because now they have to contend with actually saving these civilians and securing the Kherson front and kind of uh, making sure, you know, uh, the, all, not all the minefields are affected by the flooding water, etc. Because we do see this footage on Twitter and Telegram where like the flooding water actually causes the minefields to you know uh contract and you see mines exploding in the water itself which is pretty crazy but um ukrainians of course claiming that the russians are artillery shelling the flooding villages etc but in fact it's uh it's the minefields getting set off so nevertheless uh well i think we the fact that we predicted this correctly is uh quite telling and honestly the the entire outlay of the war itself it's been a year and a half now so it's quite clear as to exactly where the Ukrainian side will strike. You know, Lugansk, there's no way they're going to attack Lugansk. There's too many rivers there, too many waterways. Zaporozhye is still the target here. And Zaporozhye also gives you this uh, sort of dual opportunity. You can uh, go around, attack for, through the Mariupol-Donetsk angle and kind of enter into the Donetsk territory, kind of bypassing all the mountainsides of northern Donetsk and Bakhmut and kind of entering through the more sort of stable landscape there near the Azov Sea. Or you can go left, take Melitopol, of course, and head towards Crimea, which would be the greatest victory for the Ukrainians, of course, taking what was uh, apparently annexed from them via referendum in 2014, as you mentioned. So uh, again, this counteroffensive ongoing right now, uh, there's not much to say about this except for it was a grand Russian victory. I think generally, overall, uh, this was one of the first big Russian victories since Bakhmut, and in fact, that's two big victories in 2023 after the uh, tragic Ugladar, uh, Ugladar assault issue, um, I guess issue, we'll just call it a failure by the Russian side in January 2023, so it's kind of good to see the Russian side actually taking some wins. Um, generally speaking, of course, you mentioned the aviation superiority, the lack of F-16s on the Ukrainian front. We did hear about Russian attack helicopters as well as 
as well as jet fighters uh, actively being used on the Zaporozhye defensive angle. And of course, Russian artillery plus air, air, air superiority completely nullified this mechanized brigade attack by the Ukrainian side. So generally big positive news for the Russians and the Ukrainians are kind of... Uh, they're not really stating what how they feel about this, these recent losses. So, in fact, they're kind of treating it as a military secret. Uh, you know, Zelensky isn't commenting. Journalists aren't really fishing for answers here. They're kind of everyone's waiting as if this is simply the the sort of the drums before the army gets rolling. So, in fact, maybe even after recording this episode, the actual counteroffensive will begin, and we'll see those hundreds of Ukrainian tanks, which of course have been all manned and trained up, and they're all waiting in the back there. So. Yeah, kind of just uh, anticipating at the moment. So, yeah, that's a very dynamic situation, of course. And even tonight, while we're recording this, we may see some big changes. And part of, like you just talked about, the different angles and where they're going to push toward, how they're going to push towards the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea in general once they supposedly break through the front line. Part of that is going to be supposedly cutting off the land bridge to Crimea, leaving the sea and the Kerch Bridge being the only way that. Russia proper has access to the peninsula, which they've been talking about for a while. But you know, I'm gonna ask you. I'll ask you in a bit your opinion on where Bud- Budanov is, considering he. It's been the anniversary of when he said Crimea would be retaken by Ukrainian forces, and he himself seems to be nowhere to be found. But this is from Politico very recently. This headline is pretty interesting. White House anxiously watches Ukraine's counteroffensive, seeing the war and Biden's reputation at stake. So. The uh, the powers that be are watching this closely, and I think this is a good change. I want to hear your thoughts on Budanov, but I also want to hear, we're going to transition into this. If this goes really poorly, like we seem to be anticipating, like it seems to be going so far, frankly, I think this really could signal the beginning of the end for anything resembling the current regime and power structure in Kiev, especially after Petrushev, you know, the Kremlin spokespeople and these others are openly talking about now regime change in Kiev being one of the stated goals of the special military operation. Of course, the tactical bombing of Kiev has continued on since uh, Surovikin essentially uh, took his position in uh, late September, early October last year. So in fact, there's been lots of opportunities by the Russian side to actually take out these key figures in the Ukrainian SBU, the Ukrainian Ukrainian intelligence, the military. So in fact, it's not surprising that finally we're actually seeing uh, potential results. Actually, Ukrainian military leaders perhaps uh, actually being aimed for by the Russian side and uh, you know very possibly Budanov in fact has has in fact fallen to either Russian drone attacks or Russian long-range um, uh, bombardment it's just a matter of I suppose Ukraine admitting it because remember even after Bakhmut fell it took them an entire week to actually come out and you know ad- ad- admit to the facts so in a way it's almost like a he said she said the West and the media will never admit Budanov passed away until of course months later and so there won't be kind of like a PR victory for the Russian side just kind of emphasizing the fact that Budanov disappeared what's more interesting is of course Zaluzhny also partially going missing he's not really making any real appearances so in fact people are claiming the recent footage of him was deep was a deep fake and you know, deepfakes are pretty convincing nowadays, so I suppose even if we see footage of Budanov suddenly appear, um, we have seen the Ukrainians actively use green screen before, mind you. It's So it's all it's all very mysterious and kind of curious as to what exactly is happening in the Ukrainian leadership of two figures ostensibly going missing in the same month and then kind of reappearing partially. But Budanov being taken out is definitely a positive thing, not just for the Russian side, but also, I guess, to Christianity in general. He's He's probably one of the figureheads responsible for the persecution on the church, as well as some of the spying operations uh, on church grounds, uh, probably harassment against the bishops. He's the military side of all of that. 
And in fact, he's probably personally responsible for a lot of anti-Christian tactics, you know, the various bombardments and the searches. So in fact, he's uh, personally culpable and liable for a lot of the uh, degenerate Bolshevik type actions that Ukrainians have been taking place. Uh, that Ukrainians have taken recently in the last year and a half, if not more. Mind you, uh, another very interesting interview came up from another key member of the Ukrainians, the, I don't know, the prefect of the city of Kiev, shall we call him. The mayor of Kiev, Vladimir Klitschko, appeared on the popular uh, YouTube Ukrainian journalist's uh, YouTube channel. Actually, in, in an interview, they started talking about his Jewish roots. So, in fact, they started mentioning how his grandparents were, in fact, Jewish, which nobody knew because Vladimir Klitschko was a famous boxer who later became the mayor of Kiev. And everybody thought this man was by all accounts, just the ethnic Ukrainian, the Slav, but, you know, he, in fact, he just starts openly talking about his sort of, uh, I guess, uh, allegiance to this other family of people, I suppose, which was very curious. And this kind of was only released in the last two weeks. So, again, uh, these Ukrainian leaders, their, their political elite, kind of releasing these interviews, and who exactly are they signaling to on these large YouTube channels with millions of subscribers? I'm not too sure. But, uh... Yeah, so there's a lot of very curious stuff happening. I'm not sure. I think Zelensky still has his his arms very, very tightly around the wheel. I think he's still in control. There's no... I don't know if there's any opportunity for a, a takeover of the Ukrainian government. I think they're very much... They very much secured Zelensky as their potential leader who will get them that aid, who's going to eventually get them the F-16s, get them the air superiority. And yeah, Zelensky has been paying up, I think, to this day. So uh, whatever these... Uh, underlings you know them passing away them getting taken out by russia and them getting them simply disappearing it's not going to negatively affect Zelensky, Zelensky's reputation he is still the figurehead of this new uh liberal synthesized neo-nazi ukrainian bandera state as again like i don't know if ukraine really has it in them if say this counteroffensive totally fails i'm not sure i mean they don't have the f-16 yet so if the f-16s yet so if those eventually do come. I'm just starting to get confused on whether, on what army they're actually going to send in. And I guess that that gets us towards this idea of a of a sort of NATO member expeditionary force. The former head of NATO, Anders Rasmussen, who was the head of NATO from 2009 to 2014, before Stoltenberg, the current head, he is openly now talking about this force of mostly Poles and Balts you know, kind of signing on to a security agreement with Kiev and sending in, you know, boots on the ground, like major forces and, and weapons and equipment. And he is, of course, a total neocon Zelensky advisor. He used to be a Poroshenko advisor, and he, of course, has a vested interest in seeing this conflict, you know, spread across Europe. But it but seems to me that if, after this offensive, if the people are still going to go with Zelensky and go with this plan... There's going to have to be some foreign troops involved. I just don't see how this army is already smaller than the one they used for the last counteroffensive. I don't see how they'd be able to rally the troops for for another one without direct foreign intervention. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the troops shortage will become very clear soon. I mean, I think the we're not seeing any numbers officially. Ukrainians are not publishing them. There are no university studies. There's no peer-reviewed sources. So it's only, we just have to trust what the Ukrainians actually uh, kind of tell us on paper. But I think at this point, we can definitely tell that at least 
200 to 500,000 people have been conscripted into the Ukrainian military over the course of a year and a half. Numbers, of course, speculative numbers as far as 1 million people allegedly have been conscripted thus far. So the Ukrainian military is is very big at the moment. Lots of personnel, lots of staff and servicemen actually actively are getting paid. They're, they're on the payroll officially. And the payroll is, of course, US tax dollars at this point and money belonging to other European states. It's not Ukrainian. It's not the Ukrainian budget that's paying all these Ukrainian servicemen. And Mind you, the forceful conscriptions, we're seeing footage of it already. So I think that definitely if a former, if the former head of the, if the former head of NATO, you know, Zelensky's advisor is in fact stating these things openly that yes, NATO needs to move in reinforcements and actually kind of provide the manpower in order to support the Ukrainian state and, you know, these defensive positions that Ukraine has set up, then I think it's quite telling that maybe the conscription, the, the pool of conscripts that they're taking from is uh, running dry. There's not enough young men they can send into the meat grinder anymore. Nobody uh, is willing to, uh, either everyone's hiding and not receiving these invitations to be conscripted, or they're simply not there's simply not enough uh, young men to draw from. And of course, they're not conscripting young women because of, you know, matters of equality, etc. that Zelensky so far, you know, so far believes in, but... Nevertheless, I think that's what this is pointing towards, that NATO is getting desperate. And the fact that the, this advisor is uh, openly stating this to the media and we're actually receiving this story means that there probably is some truth to that. that yes, Ukraine is probably running out of actually running out of forces at this point, especially after Bakhmut. Like what was Prigozhin's statement regarding Bakhmut? He claimed at least 50,000 Ukrainians have been negatively affected by the Bakhmut conflict. That is either, as I said, either killed in action or, of course, injured severely and taken out of the you know, taken out of combat, 50,000 people, that's, that's an enormous number, I mean, like, we can't even, uh, we can't even kind of picture that amount of, you know, people uh, in a certain room or a stadium, it's, 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 it's really uh, staggering, so if that was in fact true, if 50,000 people did get hurt, or the Ukrainian servicemen did get hurt in Bakhmut, then in fact there should be some sort of call by Ukraine to, you know, possibly receive some sort of aid in terms of personnel from overseas i think it's uh, it all makes sense to me again the, there's they're trying to work out all these angles to where basically like nato troops will be there but nato itself won't have or won't activate article 5 and directly be involved and you know obviously in the balkans nato was directly involved you know openly but you know it seems they want to establish kind of a ukrainian version of k4 you know like the the nato for permanent force in kosovo they want to do that to ukraine further i think displaying the kind of connection these two situations really have, you know, Theo and Geo politically. And if, if, if all this does happen, I mean, obviously that's just another step closer towards the direct involvement of the United States, which, which that would, I mean, that, that's not a proxy war anymore. That's just a war between Russia and the United States. And that has, you know, I don't know where some people are saying that means nukes would then inevitably used. I mean, we see, this movement of, you know, supposed nuclear weapons into Belarus. Lukashenko has basically been living in Moscow these past few months with the amount of summits and meetings he's attended. So, and we're seeing other stuff around the world, you know, with the growth of BRICS and, you know, Assad's re-embrace back into the Arab League. So the, you know, the, the allies of Russia are, you know, they're, they're doing better and better around the world. So this this wouldn't the U.S. I think, as I just read from that political Politico article, I think they're very disappointed that with everything they got, Ukraine was not able to retake the banana. Well, now you now that you mentioned Kosovo and K four, I think it's uh, interesting to say that Ukraine and the U.S. and of course uh, NATO in itself has passed up already on the opportunity of setting up the Donetsk 
uh, Donbass, uh, you know, Donetsk, Lugansk, Donbass region as a certain Kosovo in the early, I guess, in the early years of the conflict, we're speaking about 2014, 2015, because that's essentially what the Minsk agreements were all about, is to set up this neutral territory between Russia and Ukraine, which would be... Uh, sort of governed by peacekeepers, so similar to K4, I suppose, if that's what, you know, they're really supposed to be there in Kosovo, and kind of uh, secure that territory so it wouldn't be bombarded. But in fact, the Minsk agreements of August, September 2014, and uh, later on early 2015, never ended up never ended up creating this peaceful uh, regime in the in the Donetsk region, frankly. And, and, and that this well, was... Well, Merkel admitted that the Minsk agreement was just a fraud, right? They admitted exactly, they yeah. So they had this opportunity, right, to set up the to set up a K four like regime in the area and sort of not escalate this conflict anywhere, and in fact have this Kosovo like region existing between Ukraine and Russia. But they've now, I guess, you can't go back to that now. I mean, you can't make uh, Zaporozhye like a Kosovo. It's just simply not going to happen, and Russia is not going to let you do that. So they've kind of fumbled the bag in that way and missed the opportunity there uh, many years ago now. Well, I guess that kind of raises the question. Obviously, in a post Zelensky Ukraine. A lot of people seem to think now, I mean, I talk about this with GSP and others have said this, while it does seem unlikely that Ilvov and some of the Polish regions of, you know, Galicia and Western Ukraine will ever really be fully integrated into Russia, I'm definitely fully on the train that Odessa and everything east of the Dnieper will eventually be absorbed. I just don't know whether there will be, like, will there be a rump state? Like, will there be kind of this Kosovo neutral demilitarized zone and then Ilvov just gets integrated into Poland. Obviously the presence of Polish troops would start to change these questions more dynamically, which, you know, we'll wait and see, but it it's all going to you know, we're gonna see, I think, in the coming in twenty twenty three, I think we'll start to see the unfolding of some of those the answers to some of those questions more clearly. And unless you have anything you want to say about the direct territorial ambitions, considering that I, I, the Russians have directly said that the liberation of new territory and the change of the regime in Kiev is now a direct goal of the military operation. There's also some drama in the military between Prigozhin and Wagner, as well as some of Kadyrov's right-hand mountaineering, you know, Chechen Muslims trying to call him out. You know, I think they're trying to win more favor with the government. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so essentially for the first time we've seen this I guess an open conflict between the leadership of Wagner and the uh, the Chechen battalions, or the you know the Chechen leaders of the uh, you know the, the people we see on TikTok all the time claiming to be like the main elites of the Russian forces, which in fact at this point Wagner is the undisputed, I guess, elite regiment of the Russian Federation. Not only do they have the most experience, but they're also the most uh, trained, and they've actually they actually have the equipment on hand to you know carry out the most daring missions in the special military operation but the chechens in fact uh we actually haven't seen them on the ground too heavily in fact you know we saw some of them around bakhmut they did assist uh kind of preventing wagner from getting surrounded during the escalation by ukraine in april of uh, of this year but um so this this scandal that's ongoing now so on the 1st of june one of the chechen leaders i guess uh, he's the right hand man of ramzan kadyrov just posted a video on his telegram just a three minute clip and his name is Jelim Khanov, uh, Adam Jelim Khanov. He's also a parliamentarian in Russia. So he holds like a dual position in a way. He's in the Russian parliament. At the same time, he's also, he has a military position in Chechnya. So he does command a large sort of contingency of forces. And he, in fact, in this video, he's speaking to Prigozhin. It's like a personal address. And he addresses Prigozhin in the Russian sense, not informally. And he says, look, 
you should stop screaming and you should uh, stop talking about all these problems of artillery shortages and how, uh, you know, stop flaming uh, Shoigu, stop talking stop talking crap, essentially, about the Russian Defense Ministry and about all these uh, mistakes that the Russian that the Russian Federation has been making. This is Jelim Khan of the Chechen essentially addressing Prigozhin. And uh, this three-minute video, he's kind of condescendingly telling Prigozhin, calling him Zhenya, which is like uh, Yevgeny. It's like a very short, short-form word, uh, kind of like what you'd call a friend. So he's addressing him incredibly informally in this video. And the response is not from the response doesn't come from Prigozhin here. It comes from Dmitry Utkin, who was the former GRU commando essentially the russian he's like uh he comes from the russian version of the navy seals the gru spetsnaz and he's like and this guy these people are extreme like uh you know very very professional military uh in intelligence officers and he's essentially what they would say on un, i guess unofficial sources claim dimitri utkin is the uh sort of navy seal like head he is the like arnold schwarzenegger of wagner he's their military he's their military leader whereas dimitri prigozhin whereas evgeny prigozhin is the sort of a ceo like he's in charge of all the business and the funding so utkin responds to Khanov and says look yeah you shouldn't speak to my you shouldn't speak to evgeny prigozhin in such a disrespectful manner you know certain citizens would be put up against the wall for saying something so shameful as you. So he essentially says, look, we'll get, we have a firing squad ready for you. And then he says, he rebuked him. And then, of course, at the end, he says, look, if you ever have any issues with Wagner, me and you can meet again uh, wherever you want. I'm sure we, me and you have met prior during the Chechen campaigns in the late 1990s. So, you know, he calls out this Chechen leader and says, look, we Russians have had a war with Chechnya before uh, with the, you know, uh, Chechen rebels. We could have one again really kind of flaming uh, flaming address here from Utkin. And in fact, it, what's interesting is that Utkin, this is the first address he's made publicly since the beginning of the SMO. He was kind of this ghost-like figure. You know, people who are, you know, because all the Wagner personnel are all wearing masks. You can't really tell their identity, right? Besides Prigozhin himself, who doesn't wear any masks, masks, etc. And people are thinking, was Utkin actually the mastermind behind Wagner's success? And in fact, this shows that uh, Utkin was in fact heavily involved in Ukraine. He wasn't somewhere in Africa or the Middle East active. He was there on the scene, actually participating in battle. And this, uh, I guess, open hero of Russia now, you know, protecting his leader, I guess, very honorable of him. But it does show that what we're seeing right now during the SMO, all these various uh, factions and conflicts between, say, the online f people uh, supporting Igor Strelkov, and then you have the Wagnerite people supporting Evgeny Prigozhin, you have the Chechen factions surrounding Kad Kadyrov and Delimkhanov. You have those folks, of course, supporting Shoigu. And it's, it's almost like a Game of Thrones-like scenario where you have several factions and not all of them agree, and they're all kind of intermixed in this massive bag. And Putin seems to be the only figurehead uniting all of them because he has a personal relationship with a lot of them. For example, Shoigu, uh, he meets with personally. Prigozhin used to work directly for Putin as his personal chef, which I'm just going to say, like, a, I guess a schizophrenic, esoteric post would be that Putin, if you read Putin's biography, he does mention a lot of the time that his grandfather, Putin's grandfather, Spiridon, Spiridon Putin, which was his name, was the former chef of Lenin and Stalin during the Soviet regime. So this interesting transition from chef to political elite in Russia is, I mean, I don't know, coincidence, right? But Prigozhin used to be Putin's chef. So very interesting. So all these various factions. And of course, you have Strelkov, who attacks not just Prigozhin, but also Kadyrov and Shoigu all at the same time through his massive Telegram channel of 800,000 followers. And Strelkov is former FSB. 
which you know is the Russian equivalent of the KGB, the FBI, CIA. So it's just a lot of big fa- factionalisms happening on the Russian front. Um, this is not to say that the Ukrainians are somehow united because they're not. Ukrainians are controlled from overseas, just like simple puppets essentially. But the Russian side is not a huge monolith as as the the appearance may be given off. You know, by say people uniting around Putin. Putin is the uniting figure, but besides besides him, there really isn't a uniting idea here. Yeah, Strelkov of that group is really the only one who's even begun to criticize Putin, and he usually keeps that pretty. That's not like the main focus of his criticism. He's just the only one I think that's even named him at all. But before, of course, you can say anything you need to before we move on, but before we move completely away from the front line and the counteroffensive, for those that say that this isn't a counteroffensive, I believe there's at least 74 like confirmed tank destructions on this front line, which is a lot of tanks if this wasn't a counteroffensive. And that's even in accounting for the unfortunate fake footage published by the pro-Russian side of Russians just neutralizing a very threatening piece of combine farm equipment, like a tractor of some kind, then quickly claiming that it was a leopard, which it was not. But despite that, there were many actual tanks destroyed. And the even CNN, I think we said, I read that Politico headline. This is, you know, somewhat breaking. CNN even said Ukrainian forces suffer stiff resistance and losses and assault on Russian lines. So the mainstream media in the West is definitely uh, willing at least to put out news of this failure. And this comes amidst a big spat of stories in the past two weeks or so, suddenly deciding that we need to know that we're going to notice the Nazi symbols and insignias on all these Ukrainian soldiers, that we're suddenly going to start noticing that. So I think the idea of, you know, phasing out support for Ukraine and maybe some kind of regime change and maybe seeding the idea of some kind of agreement with Russia after this idea that, oh, maybe there are Nazis here is put into the eyes, the consciousness of the people it's been hidden from for so long. I think, you know, nothing runs in the Washington Post and CNN without the approval of intelligence agencies. That's just how the media in America works, you know, Operation Mockingbird and the like. So I think when you see stuff like that, it's important to start to think about what's coming down the pipeline that they want us to be, you know, conditioned for. But unless you have anything you want to uh, say about all of that, I was going to, there's some stuff coming out with China and Taiwan, near misses in the Taiwan Strait. We want to get into that. But anything else, Dimitri? No, I think Taiwan is definitely a hot subject to speak about. And like, there's clear analogies, you know, because what's happening between the US and China right now is very much, they're very much in a Cold War-like stage, I think you would agree. Yeah, I mean, this is from Slavyongrad. Uh, the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee passed a bill that requires major government agencies to prepare and respond to China's upcoming offensive against Taiwan. And this is, the law requires the heads of several federal agencies, including the US Department of Defense, the Department of Commerce, and the State Department, to propose comprehensive sanctions strategies and help the U.S. and its allies formulate policies to respond to any Beijing force. This includes an invasion that infringes on Taiwan's territorial sovereignty by preventing access to international waterways, airspace, or telecommunications networks. I mean, notice they're using language like Beijing force, talking about Taiwan's territorial sovereignty. How does this align with the one China policy that the U.S. embassy and the U.S. supposedly abides by? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, in a way, it really doesn't. I mean, uh, I think the US is simply preparing for the inevitable escalation between itself and China, but simply there's too many, 
there are too many ties, uh, I guess, economic ties, which Trump tried to address during his presidency between the United States and China. So the fact that the military industrial complex is moving to, I guess, negatively impact this relationship is very telling. You know, they're kind of not doing it on the economic front, but more on the military, which I mean, this story about the Taiwan Strait, right, the two ships almost colliding, the you know, Chinese naval ship and the U.S., uh, the U.S. warship uh, destroyer, yeah, I think it was, yeah, that like that is something straight out of the late, I guess, late Soviet textbooks about you know international soft power usage, essentially intimidation tactics, things that keep uh, your opponents on edge. Yeah, of course, the Chinese are the ones playing the long game here. They're slowly but surely building up their navy, turning a white water navy into a blue water navy. Built, they have surpassed the U.S. in amount of warships. They're building more and more aircraft carriers. I think they have up to four, which used to be America was the only nation that had more than one. So with China's industrial capacity, they are outpaid. Even if we were to, I believe, start building our own aircraft carriers, China has a capacity to still outpace us with just their population and manufacturing base. Remember, India did surpass China as most populated nation. The whole one-child policy, I don't think, helped them in the long run there. But again, China on a military front is... Again, I'm not saying they're exceeding the U.S. yet or will even in this decade, but they are quickly catching up. And within a few decades, it really is going to start being a parity question, especially once we move into the field of directed energy weapons, some of this drone warfare stuff, and how some of those you know, directed energy railguns and these other things that have been openly tested and shown by the U.S. military as well as China and Russia we're going to start seeing these applied, you know, on the high seas. And that, you know, brings in, I mean, there's this near miss. It wasn't quite a near, near miss. It was a bit played up by the media in the U.S. But this U.S., you know, warship was cruising through the Taiwan Straits and the Chinese, you know, refused to move their path. And they got pretty dang close to each other. And the U.S. is like talking about aggressive moves by China. China says the U.S. should watch where it's going, you know, should really stay away from Chinese waters. And the U.S. immediately responds defiantly, we'll navigate whatever international waters we want, you know, asserting international waters and all this stuff and all these things that ultimately, I believe, are upheld by international sea treaties, not even ratified by the United States. So they're not even speaking from a legitimate point of what one might call maritime law. But when you see the image, they're operating, you know, like a few miles off the coast of mainland China, acting as if, oh, we're just driving around international waters, nothing to see here, as if, you know, they aren't somewhat responding to the amount, the massive Chinese drills that, you know, led to Taipei Airport having to have a no-fly zone for six-plus hours at certain times, and, you know, China trying to show that, you know, you you do you operate on our terms, which obviously they don't right now, but, and I'll start to take them a little more seriously when they take the Kinmen Islands literally right off their coast, but slowly but surely they are moving that direction. And again, I've said this a million times, but China would much rather peacefully reintegrate with Taiwan, which is fundamentally a growing sentiment on the island from the nationalists there. And of course, uh, the uh, comment from the Chinese defense minister who was in Singapore at the time where the near collision occurred, and of course it was reported to him, uh, General Li Shengfu, he of course just very coldly commented, he said, the best way is for the countries, especially their naval vessels and fighter jets, uh, not to do closing actions around other countries' territories. What's the point of the US going there? In China, we usually say, mind your own business. So he just kind of commented that the US really shouldn't be doing maneuvers around Chinese territory. In, you know, of course, these are legally speaking international waters, but they're just, they're merely tens of kilometers away from China, which, of course, the Chinese Navy will be patrolling very actively. Now, 
if you may think, oh, well, this is just a collision, like a near collision story, it's somewhat irrelevant. But the relationship between US and China right now is, you could say, somewhat amicable, but, you know, generally still neutral to friendly, right? Well, kind of reminds me of the time the, the, the Russian submarines, or, you know, out, just outside of St. Petersburg, suddenly went down in 19, I think it was 1999. In fact, uh, just uh, for anyone interested, you can search up the story of the Kursk submarine disaster, the K-141 submarine. It literally mysteriously went down just outside of St. Petersburg three months after Putin's inauguration into, pres into the presidency. Uh, and the, you know, it was never really solved as to why this Russian submarine, this nuclear-powered submarine, suddenly just sunk. You know, allegedly, you know, there were, of course, this conspiracy theories that the submarine was hit either by an American torpedo or an American sub literally rammed it underwater. And, of course, the Russians never ended up investigating it, or even if they did, there was no claims that, that the Americans actually did this. And during a time when, allegedly, this is right post-Yeltsin Russia, Russia was very friendly with the United States, 118 Russian sailors died on the submarine, and Putin never ended up pursuing any action. So... Collisions do occur, and governments, of the, even if, say, the Chinese ship did hit a United States vessel, the, the story could easily be hidden and easily could be masqueraded as, you know, just a simple accident. Even if uh, there was, say, in the moment, there was some sort of heated exchange, just like the Kursk one-for-one -one disaster, which occurred. So I think that's very, uh, it's a very pertinent analogy that, you know, these covert accidents do occur sometimes, and sometimes major governments decide not to escalate the matters, like a Russian submarine got taken out, a Rus Russia decided not to pursue it. You know, even though they had every avenue to do that. I think when it comes to China, it's important to look at its role as well directly in the Ukrainian conflict. And I would classify China not quite as, you know, I would say, look, I mean, who knows how the U.S. is classifying all of this. Belarus seems to be the only one that makes the Wikipedia page of co-belligerence. Maybe they've put Iran on there. But I would classify direct allies of Russia's special military operation as Belarus, Iran, and Syria, and then secondary kind of tertiary support, you could say, coming from China, some of these African countries, Venezuela. And China is obviously looking at this very cautiously because they don't want a whole precedent to be set about the reintegration of territory, you know, that is, you know, effectively yours, but internationally disputed. They don't want precedent to be set that isn't going to lead to them getting exactly what they want with Taiwan. And they also want, I think, to be fully aware of the kind of the NATO forces being used there so as to adequately understand how they can fight those forces in the future, especially in a naval capacity. And obviously we see Iran giving Russia drones and everything, and Iran trying to buy uh, Russian aircraft, I think SU-35s, they're trying to purchase some of those from Russia, and that's going through just like Ukraine, obviously trying to get f-16s but w with all of that there far as like kind of the layers of alliances go china is of course very close with both iran saudi arabia serbia another you know looser ally of russia these days these china's you know integrating all these places in their belt and road project and now we're seeing you know saudi arabia and mexico openly talking about entering BRICS. so again the whole multipolarity thing really really is like the whole BRICS currency thing is now being talked about very openly and like the western media is like a real threat so this realignment is happening fairly quickly and you know we talked a lot on the show about the turkish election and you know we did some i did some live coverage with david dimitri you know hasn't been around to cover it as much but we obviously saw erdogan 
victorious, you know, perhaps delaying the Saint Paisios moment a little bit, you know, thank God, perhaps some repentance has been going on there. But not only did he win, but the powers that be pretty quickly settled into another another Erdogan term. They accepted that as reality. A lot of world leaders showed up. Biden immediately congratulated him. And it seems that, you know, all is well in, in Turkey. They then proceeded to ban OnlyFans. But as far as, you know, the we've talked about this before, but the the China, Russia, Iran, you know, kind of Eurasian force is proof. Look, in a real world, those that alliance would obviously have more influence than the United States in the Middle East. It, the, it's an alliance of multiple Eurasian states. But due to the disconcerted and discombobulated influence the U.S. has had since 9-11 in particular, the world has finally started to more resemble that more regionally hegemonic state where basically every country has now come back into the fold of Russia, China, Iran, at the very least equally with the U.S., if not directly aligned with them against the U.S. And obviously, Dimitri, I'm curious your thoughts on Erdogan, the... It obviously helps Russia in this case that he will not be aligning himself quite as close with NATO. However, it seems that he may still let Sweden into NATO, which, you know, maybe that was inevitable as far as the whole European situation goes. But he, he probably will still play ball with both sides. He definitely won't be going full Russian or anything like that. But certain disasters may have been prevented. Uh, I think it's not just the huge positive factor for Russia, Erdogan's return to the presidency and him kind of securing the Turkish office, of course, lets him really make some changes in terms of addressing Turkish inflation. So, of course, domestically, uh, the inflation of Turkey, I think, is well over 50%, which is absurd and uh, really hurting the local markets. But generally speaking, one of the biggest Turkish neighbors, Syria, I mean, the Turkish relationship with Syria has been quite up and down in the last two decades, you could say, and really kind of solidifying his personal relationship with Assad, who has kind of returned back into the fold into the uh, Arab world, recently visiting Saudi Arabia. I think that'll be one of Erdogan's uh, great missions, I think, coming coming forward. Now that Assad has secured Syria for himself, ISIS has been all but defeated. The Kurdish militants have been kind of, uh, you know, kind of cautioned and they're kind of taking a back seat over there. So uh, the fight against the rebels in Syria has almost finished and it's just a matter of now returning to a peaceful coexistence on the Syrian-Turkish border and coming to terms with some of these disasters that have re recently taken place, you know, for example, the uh, earthquakes and things of that nature. So it's just a matter of Erdogan securing a relationship with us, uh, I guess, probably the country which shares the longest border with Turkey, I believe Syria, would be it. And so Erdogan, of course, meeting, meeting up with Assad was probably one of the biggest moves recently uh, as in, in terms of like securing that relationship. I think also Erdogan, naturally, all these world leaders meeting up with him, of course, they're planning to most likely appease Erdogan and claim that, look, we may have, at least on paper, supported your opposition, or maybe we favored them, but you are still our chosen leader to rule Turkey. You are still, you know, the this powerful building building block of NATO, and we don't want Turkey going anywhere, even if we don't actively ask you to support Ukraine in this given conflict, and we don't ask you to go against Assad. Turkey is given this leeway, this given this liberal permission to do as it pleases, until it is, of course, called upon, just like it was called upon during the Cold War in order to position these nuclear missiles on Turkish territory during the Cold War against the Soviet Union in the late 1900s. And of course, Turkey's position in NATO is similar to Belarus's in, in Russia, where you know now that Putin is moving nuclear missile bases to Belarus, it's 
it's very much like Turkey is very much needed for the United States in order to keep that balance going. I think that's Turkey's position for the future. It's simply this trump card which is being kept in the back pocket and Erdogan is supposed to run things uh, smoothly, quietly, but he also gets a lot of uh, freedom to act, I think. Eh. But mind you, this opinion is mine personally. Of course, the Turkish people most likely want Erdogan to run their country as sovereignly as possible, but Turkish membership in NATO does kind of remove some of that sovereign decision. Perhaps maybe crackdowns against the LGBT alphabet community will kind of lessen the grip of the EU's decision makers and NATO, which Turkey is still looking forward to entering into the EU, mind you, right? So perhaps uh, cracking down on these degenerate movements, such as the alphabet community, the uh, OnlyFans, the pornographic different websites and organizations governing all of that, will kind of separate Turkey, culturally speaking, away from these Western uh, Western hegemons. So we'll just have to wait and see, I suppose. Well, one of the, I guess it's not, it's not fair to say one of the first things he did as it's something that he, I don't think he manifested the situation, but one of the first things Erdogan did was he actually sent troops to Serbia, Kosovo and in the K4 contingency. And it seems that, you know, he's, once he won the election, he's right back to, you know, stretching out his influence and kind of spreading the, you know, the neo-Ottoman vision and making, I'm sure he's going to get right back to his, you know, I guess he, I think he recently struck a deal with Egypt, but he's going to get right back to their, you know, predatory oil and natural gas drilling sites and everything to expand. You know, we'll still see if he does, he'll probably still end up meeting with Assad probably, but we'll see how he actually pulls back from Syria. But in general, as far as his inevitable fall and replacement by Kemalists, it seems to me that he's almost more likely to probably pass away and then be replaced as opposed to necessarily losing an election. He seems to have solidified his support among the Turkish people despite intense opposition and what we would say, you know, harp earthquakes and the like. It shows you the power of, you know, total media control and the total necessity of authoritarianism and the total need to punish and make journalists submit to your will to not subvert the will of the people because, you know, the press is fundamentally the enemy from an international perspective, especially run by you know, notorious non-Christians as they are. And as far as, you know, I think we covered a lot of the multipolar different countries and everything, we've seen the church persecutions only continue. We know, I mentioned this with GSP, Metropolitan Pavel's house arrest was extended for a month. And even more despicably, not that, I mean, articles aren't as despicable as action, but of course the clowns at public orthodoxy funded by you know, Fordham Jesuit University and their Orthodox cronies, you know, George Demacopoulos, Aristotle, pee pee poo poo, you know, these guys, <laughs> they're defending, of course, the persecution of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, defending this painting of the church as a, you know, vehicle of, you know, sectarianism and being pro Russian. And in general, she says that the UOC is not welcomed by, you know, real Ukrainian patriots and all this kind of wow. stuff. So, again, I'm not surprised by this from these clowns but it just shows you that you know the state department influence runs deep 
Yeah, that's really not surprising. I think the other consideration, of course, is the, the Ukrainian government does seem to have slowed down, at least it's kind of pushed the brake pedal on the persecution in terms of actively moving on the two lovers. Because notice the, you know, we had those events, for example, the crosses on one of the churches in the Kiev Pichersko lover actually blackening and going dark, you know, these miraculous events, icons, you know, streaming myrrh, like on several occasions, uh, you know, several icons actually at the lover. So you had these even miraculous signs, you know, kind of denouncing Zelensky and his government's actions. And I don't think they want that kind of publicity. I think they're happy actually receiving the monetary aid from abroad. Cracking down on the church at the moment just seems like, seems to kind of uh, only weaken their internal position. And in fact, I mean, we've said this all along, if Zelensky act actively shielded for Orthodox Christianity, or at least Ukrainian Orthodoxy in some particular way, perhaps he would receive even more internal support because we have... I mean, we saw an interview, some Orthodox priests in Ukraine, so these are Ukrainian priests, and they actually have family members serving in the Ukrainian military, and uh, they, those members ended up, of course, calling back to their parents, and, you know, there's footage online of the, the son of a priest saying, why is Zelensky persecuting the church if I'm serving in the military, serving Zelensky, essentially, serving the Ukrainian military? So, there's all these questions arise, and persecutions are such a complex matter at the moment, it's just something, I don't, I don't think Zelensky wants that sort of heat. Some of these bishops, of course, like the Bishop of Zaporozhia, of course, he is on securely on Russian territory, and there's no way, despite the current fighting happening in his diocese, that he, even for administrative purposes, even with the best intentions, if he crosses that border and goes to the Ukrainian sides, uh, Ukrainian side, he will be arrested by the SBU, definitely detained, probably uh, given a much harsher sentence than simply house arrest of Metropolitan Paul. So Metropolitan Luke of Zaporozhia, there's no recommendation or, you know, we can't fault him for you know not being in touch with his flock physically or not attending their churches or their feast days. For example, Pentecost took place uh, last Sunday. So in fact, I think it's I think it's quite hard for the different bishops, but definitely the Ukraine has kind of definitely pushed the pedal, I think, on persecutions. Recently, at least, we haven't seen any uh, disgusting acts. I mean, but besides the various Satanists gathering outside of the monasteries, but these are mostly private actions. I don't think we've seen uh, things, not saying that until now it hasn't been bad, it really has. No, it has. And I believe the video you were mentioning was actually one of the adopted children of Metropolitan Longman, who I think is being totally railroaded by the establishment and being you know persecuted again for the silly you know they'll take any book that mentions the history of ukraine as being part of russia and arrest you for owning pro-russian literature this kind of nonsense and you mentioned metropolitan luke i don't know his exact whereabouts but as far as i'm aware he's at least still in melitopol which is a you know large city of you know four hundred thousand people plus so i'm sure he's able to celebrate these feasts with a large flock of people of course zaporozhia a bigger city 750k but again like i said the front line is a lot closer towards zaporozhia than the ukrainians are to melitopol so perhaps we'll see that change but again i mean also some of these bishops that are behind the front lines i believe have even petitioned to be directly under the moscow patriarchate i don't understand exactly how that works considering they're still you know in you know, they were still under Metropolitan Onufri, who is still, they're in communion, I guess, with Moscow, at least in the, I guess, in the looser sense, they still are. And I'm just wondering, I guess we don't know exactly how that works. I don't remember exactly which bishops those were. But as far as the persecution of the monasteries, it's also, I'm watching the all the maps, you know, a military summary on live UA. And seeing, you know, Sviatogorsk, it's in the, the gray zone of fire outside of, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk. And I'm just hoping that it uh, eventually is securely behind 
the front lines because you know there's already been so much destruction of a very beautiful place that I hope to visit someday where it doesn't get you know totally burned down. Yeah, and other interesting news, I suppose, from mainland Russia, there was a huge exposition which took place in next to the Pskov Caves Monastery, actually, and the exposition was called, uh, it took place at the Spasso Eliazarovsk Monastery, and if anyone recalls the name, it does come up in Russian history in the 1400s. This is where the famous letter came from, addressed to Prince Ivan III, which speaks about Moscow as the Third Rome, so this is the letter was written from the monks of this monastery to the Russian prince, kind of telling him that Russia is now, you know, the last sort of king, the last Orthodox kingdom, the last Orthodox imperium that has to stand up and hold back evil. And in fact, this exhibition was recently visited by perhaps the second in charge of the entire Russian church, the second most prominent bishop. When he was a priest, he sold the bestseller, best-selling book. It was called Everyday Saints. You may have heard about it. So his name was uh, Bishop Tikhon or Metropolitan Tikhon of the Pskov Caves. And he visited this exhibition and he, of course, gave a speech speaking about how Russia and Moscow is the third Rome and it primarily needs to be understood in a spiritual fashion, but also in a civilizational cultural sense. Russia did spiritually inherit this particular mission to hold back evil in the world. And he kind of cements that. Now, mind you, this is a Russian bishop on Russian territory, kind of gets to speak freely about these things. And he chooses to visit this monastery and speak about these almost, you can say, politicized ideas. Now, this is not a freedom that can be granted to any Ukrainian bishop at any time. If a Ukrainian bishop is even caught mentioning Moscow as the third Rome or anything of this sort, he would be, you know, he would be completely ostracized. And in fact, he'd probably be persecuted actively, as we can see with Bishops Longin, Bishop Paul, etc. Those who mention these sort of pro-Russian ideas. So in fact, on mainland Russia, we do see these cultural, I guess, civilizational reassessments of Russia's mission, Russia's mission post-Soviet collapse. Like, what is the Russian ideology, as St. Seraphim Sobolev you know, published in his book, Russian Ideology, which everybody should read, you know, what is the real meaning behind Russia as a country? Is there a, you know, is there a manifest destiny, so to speak, here? And uh, Metropolitan Tikhon kind of does cement that. He also, just like, I guess we're going to be really, we're kind of saying this for the first time. I don't think the English-speaking world has heard this news, but uh, Metropolitan Tikhon did mention that the Pskov Caves monastery in Russia will be potentially given the status of a Lavra in the near future. So one of the, there's only, I believe, less than eight Lavra in the entire world. One of them on Mount Athos. I believe a few in the Ukraine, we speak about the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, the Pechayev Lavra, the Svetogorsk Lavra. Russia has, I believe, two, and this will be a potential third. So, in fact, uh, a huge kind of addition to the entire Orthodox world. And uh, so these potential, uh, these kind of views on, on church history at the moment are ongoing actively, but in the Ukraine, they're actively, you know, they're, they're stifled by the government's actions and by just even... There's not even a real discussion happening here. I don't want to speak in a Jordan Peterson type sense, but there isn't even a free discussion of what it means to be a Ukrainian as opposed to what it means to be a Slav or a Russian or how these two or three different identities interact, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously anything that, I believe anything published by Metropolitan Tikhon is probably completely banned in the entirety of Ukraine. It's horrible because I recommend everyone read Everyday Saints. It make, I have always wanted to visit the Skov Caves Monastery after reading it. The stories in it are incredible like it's again obviously we don't base our faith in miracles but it's one of those things where you read it you genuinely kind of feel your faith getting stronger by both the simplicity but just the, the i'm sorry i'll just say it like the kind of wonder of the revelations that are given in orthodoxy i would say in the modern world even in a time of you know persecution when that's what happening when you read the book definitely a softer and even receding persecution as you know the soviet union imploded on itself but it, it's it's really a beautiful story, so it's it's all true. So I recommend everybody get a copy yourself. But 
as far as other things in the news, there, this is something that came as a surprise to me. Uh, ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew has apologized for mishandling issues pertaining to the Archdiocese of America and the Greek American community. And this specifically came, which I covered this on my newsletter back in the day, the decisions that led to the dethronement of Metropolitan Evangelos of New Jersey and Metropolitan Methodios of Boston regard that regarded the abrogation of the charter of the archdiocese that I believe they just didn't follow archdiocesan procedure to to do that. And the article that talks about this doesn't really get into the specifics, but as far as I remember, the dismissal of those two bishops loosely had to do with COVID nonsense, but was all about El Pitoforos clearing out his perceived enemies from the synod. And these guys were, as far as I'm aware, they were much more on the traditional side and less on the nonsense side that LP himself was. I mean, he went to the March for Life and basically said pro-abortion statements. He has called for all sorts of nonsense. He called for the communing of non-Orthodox spouses, Orthodox people. He's called for, you know, I believe he's called for much more involvement of women. He's let, He's the one that's allowed all this IOTA conference stuff about deaconesses and this nonsense we're hearing from these Ukrainian female seminary professors about how the Orthodox Church is on the wrong side of history and these just horrible, horrible things. He's the one allowing all of that to fester in the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. And he's basically been slapped down, as far as I can tell, by Bartholomew, who Bartholomew a few years back, I can't remember which scandal led to it, but he basically said, well, it'd be cool to replace El Pitofotos, but he's we can't have a new head of GoArch every three years because you know the last few have had pretty heavy turnover. And it's like, well, my response to that is maybe, you know, make somebody someone good do the job or something like that. But Bartholomew and El Pitofotos perhaps are drifting apart, which means we may not be burdened with an El Pitofotos ecumenical patriarchate. That's not to say there aren't worse options, you know. Emmanuel of Chalcedon, I can think of others that would be just as bad or even worse than our Goarch friend here. But again, the Assembly of Bishops has been somewhat inert just because everyone is very much not on board with everything Elpidophotos is doing. And I'm just, I'm just kind of surprised by this. Perhaps this is showing some, you know, a bit more deference towards the actual concerns of the people on the ground here in America as opposed to just... Because as far as I can tell, it was a really... There's, this is a bit of a prevention of a very large ongoing power grab from El Pitofotos, who was trying to change the the bigger plan was he was trying to change the charter to be where he was basically the only archbishop or metropolitan over the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese, abolishing all other metropolises, which there's a metropolis of New Jersey, there's a metropolis of Denver, there's metropolises out west, there's a metropolis of, metropolis of Boston, you know, there's a lot of... The Greek Orthodox Archdiocese is by far the biggest archdiocese of the Orthodox Church in America. And now it's not saying that this in and of itself is bad, but for the purposes that El Pitofotos wanted to do it, most definitely bad. Every single one of these other metropolitan bishops is better than El Pitofotos. Some of them, you know, Metropolitan Isaiah being one that I know of, despite being very old, is, you know, a very saintly man. So I think, I mean, for an example, this is the structure in the Antiochian Archdiocese, which I'm a part of. All we, the only person we commemorate in the liturgy is the Metropolitan not Metropolitan Saba. And, you know, my archdiocese were kind of in flux for bishop. And historically, you know, we're Bishop Basil. But, you know, he's just an auxiliary bishop over a diocese, you know, for functional purposes. The Metropolitan is who's actually, you know, the administrative head. And El Pitofotos was trying to do the same thing, make himself, you know, Archbishop Metropolitan over all of America and all the other Metropolitans simply 
auxiliary bishops with much less power. That's right. And I mean, Archbishop Elpidopoulos, him being an Orthodox bishop and him still retaining some form of grace, of course, from, from the apostles and God, and him not being a denounced heretic at this point, even though he has made plain heretical statements, and perhaps in his private life he does make heretical moves. But in fact, uh, we do have to give him a certain good faith, benefit of a doubt, that, look, he's doing making these moves simply to improve administration or to kind of uh, improve the Greek Orthodox uh, church structure. But it is very hard to do, given that, he has made incredibly, uh, incredibly negative, negative statements as well as moves regarding uh, orthodoxy in America. Like he has, in fact, negatively impacted the Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church's image. You know, marching with BLM, making statements against uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, George Floyd. Just kind of, of course, the COVID, COVID vaccine situation. He has simply put himself at the head of all these controversies and kind of shed a really bad light on orthodoxy in the United States in general. So I just think him, as you said, like it, honestly, any bishop in America would probably be a better leader of the American Orthodox a Greek community than he would be. So in fact, it's simply a matter of Bartholomew, of course, stepping up and maybe recommending he move to a different diocese, which has happened. And in Russia, it happens all the time. Bishops are moved between different dioceses. It's a new tradition in the old Byzantine uh, world. This is prior to maybe some of the ecumenical councils, even bishops would never move dioceses. But these days, it is quite common. So if only Elpidophoros could be moved overseas somewhere, perhaps it would be a bit of a wake-up call if he could lead a small diocese in Greece somewhere and not have this huge Eastern American uh, conglomerate with all this money involved in power and all these negative influences. I think that would, uh, and this is me coming from like, I guess, a, a good faith perspective. I'm just thinking, what's the best for El Pedophoros here, the Archbishop? <laughs> but at this point, yeah, any bishop, honestly, would be better than him at this point. You know, to quote a semi-well-known, you know, shark boy and lava girl meme, you know, quote, you know, ecumenical patriarch, take this heretic and banish him deep into the depths of Turkey where he belongs. I think that's, I think that's what a lot of us may want to want to happen in this situation. But unless you have anything else to say, perhaps on ecclesial matters, we can get into some other territory. Of course, we saw Tucker Carlson's show somewhat return in you know, 10-minute segments every night to Twitter. It's been pretty interesting, and we've now had UFO discourse injected into the timeline. And this all also comes with the big recent news. This is, you know, just happened before we started recording this, is this latest Trump indictment about the classified documents that he had in Mar-a-Lago, which, again, all this stuff is theater. It's all lawfare. It's all total weaponization of the deep state in a very bizarre way. Which we're also seeing here in Texas, which I may explain a little bit. It's also getting crazy with some of the bizarre FBI assaults on our leadership here in Texas. But this is definitely a lot more serious for Trump than I think the Stormy Daniels nonsense. I don't know why the libtards decided to lead with that one. Yeah, that's right. I think this indictment is, uh, if anything, just a, just a move to essentially denounce Trump and kind of bring about this uh, DeSantis primary, which I think is what not just the liberals, but also the establishment is banking on. I think we also, Nicholas Fuentes recently on Rumble kind of broke down is, is essentially why DeSantis really can't be the candidate and his kind of ties to all these uh, Israeli power players and all these uh, all these big money sponsors, which Trump really does need to rely on. I think it's it's simple. The globalists want the in and they want Trump out. And if that means triggering an indictment based on this, you know, document hoax or whatever Trump is calling it, even if this 
indictment is real and valid. You know, it's just a matter of what exactly it'll do for the Trump presidency or for Trump running. It's simply, uh, I, I believe it's probably a move to have him have his reputation, of course, damaged. And it's it's a massive case of defamation against him in order to affect his running against DeSantis, right? Like this is where it's going. If not, of course, to completely illegitimize him. And I'm not sure what the legalities are in the United States for running for president, but uh, a president, can you run for a presidency if you are indicted or if there are, if you are under an investigation of this sort? I mean, in theory, I think he can run for president from a prison cell. It's just kind of hard. Yeah, that's like, right. So like, travel. Like, would, like, how would he do rallies, you know, stuff like that? In theory, would probably not be allowed to broadcast. But in theory, I mean, that's probably what they want to do. They want to arrest him. I think they want... On the one hand, Trump has admitted, you know, that the optics of him actually in handcuffs would be good. Him, you know, being detained for an extended period of time during the campaign period would be pretty, pretty devastating. That combined with, you know, we have Tucker Carlson effectively, he's back on Twitter, but even Fox is, you know, challenging him on this. They're going to say that he's breaching contract because they had a pretty dang strict non-compete agreement in there. And they claim he's breaching it by doing his show on Twitter. And his show on Twitter, his second episode was great as well, talking about you know, white, anti-white racism, you know, the taboos in society, as well as his first episode, he kind of came out swinging with the UFOs are real thing, which, you know, if you've been following me for a while, you kind of know our whole take on UFOs. But unfortunately, you know, he's now been subjected to some very anti-schizo rhetoric on the timeline, which, you know, I don't love to see. But as far as Tucker goes, he also opened his first episode with some red pills about the Novaya Kakovka Dam you know, and really kind of came out swinging for Putin and Russia, which, you know, we like to see, we like to see, I guess. But, you know, he's been pushing against Ukraine, pushing against the diversity, anti-white racism. And now, you know, I don't necessarily believe his interpretation of the UFO story. And I may even agree with some critics that it's not necessarily the biggest, it may be some form of distraction right now. But at the same time, I don't believe that just because, you know, our main issues are demographic replacement and, you know, good foreign policy and these other kinds of things from an America first perspective means we abandon the conspiracy truther subculture that has, you know, always been a backbone of of the base right. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of counter signaling, you know, people being pro moon landing and other such nonsense, you know. At the very least, if you're gonna, you can believe that stuff, but you know, just just keep quiet about it. You know, no one needs to. You know, we don't need to fight about those kinds of things. That's right. We all have different opinions. You know, some of us, uh, some of us are missing four one one believers. Some of us are more interested in the whole flat Earth dialogue, and others are more interested in you know, space related matters and aliens. I think everybody has these sub interests, which nevertheless do not allow us to you know kind of not break bread at the same table so to speak uh not, not in a spiritual sense but kind of come together in in a certain movement i think alex jones in many ways has shown this to be true him housing these various people who hold these you know conspiratorial ideas on the same platform minus the one idea which of course nobody's allowed to speak about that'll get us banned about them boys but that's the only idea which seems to be the most uh, critical of all conspiracies, which uh, shall not be named. But besides that, all the other conspiracies and folks who believe in all these theories can kind of come to the same table and maybe uh, amicably have these discourses. As long as we all, of course, agree that the world is run by a certain group of elites, these globalists, these hegemons who kind of set culture on end and kind of set things for destruction through this uh, leftist agenda, which I think is the one thing that has united all of us, right? And... Again, condemning schizo posting, condemning esoteric conspiracies from from existing, I, I think it's uh, it's not a matter of optics at this point. If anything, 
it's kind of become the norm, like Tucker Carlson mentioning the whole UFO angle. It's a bit quirky, but it's also a way to bring in, I guess, people who believed things like the COVID vaccines, for example, to into the fold. Like it's one one step is you kind of question the validity of the vaccines, you question Bill Gates, etc. And then you move on and say, well, has the government actually been hiding certain technologies? What else has the government been hiding? You move on to 9-11, Alex Jones, and then you start looking at the financial system, the fiat system who runs the banks, etc., and the rabbit hole, you're basically in it, right? That's kind of how I see the whole alien dilemma. I see it as a certain stepping stone to a much larger, grander, like, reality, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's it's them boys. I mean, I was about to say we them boys, but we most certainly are not, we most certainly are not them boys. And I, <laughs> I think when it comes to the, the problem is, I understand that, you know, people say, oh, we need to talk about these other issues. We can't talk about UFOs or conspiracies. But look, we live in a pretty crazy time. We live in a weird new age time, the resurgence of religion. We all saw the afrolatry of the George Floyd era. We've seen the bizarre femoid worship, the weird tranny stuff. Like, these are all very religious, religious things. And to just forfeit the kind of theopolitical, the theology, the symbology, the kind of schizo connecting all the dots, to forfeit that, that's just going to get filled by the, the, the modern religionists of the future. You know, we need to be, you know, I'm a, I'm a Schwab stack enjoyer. I enjoy some of the more schizo accounts on Twitter. But more than that, like, when it comes to questions like cosmology, especially when it comes to, like, people say that you shouldn't really be bringing, you know, religion into politics, like talking about like fundamental truth you know if we're going to be a like if you know taking this all the way back to like you know, plato and you know essentialism and you know versus nominalism and these sorts of things like if you actually abandon the fundamental quest for truth and knowledge of god then i'm sorry the political movement's not going to pan out it's just not so to abandon i think that's the undercurrent that's this anti-schizo current is actually these people that are a bit more secular than they may even want to admit on the timeline. Yeah, and I think that the, the greatest analogy of let's not be a schizo at all, let's be completely clean, let's be completely sterile, like the walls of a hospital, completely white, just uh, like it's it's like living in, in an asylum without any color, right? This is essentially what the late Soviet Soviet Union was all about, essentially. You had no UFOs, you had nothing, uh, nothing interesting of note, including spirituality was completely killed. Religion was uh, not banned per se, but it was definitely ostracized to the point where you couldn't go to church, you couldn't speak about miracle-working icons, you couldn't even focus on things that are out of this world, anything metaphysical, which it spilled over into people essentially not believing, not just in, you know, on one hand, yes, people stopped believing in hippie nonsense and esotericism almost completely died out in the Soviet Union, but they also stopped believing in God, essentially, this completely materialistic reality, which, uh, what did it turn into? Complete apathy. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1999, you saw the GRU, the KGB, all these various institutions, the leaders of the military, nobody twitched a finger. They let the entire structure of the state collapse, and they all lost their jobs. No one had the energy, no one had the vision, no one had the inspiration to act. So in fact, and besides the crony capitalists, them boys, the bankers, and those who wanted to actually sell and destroy the Soviet Union as it is, and those who took those in the Communist Party who took advantage of the fall, people such as Yeltsin and Gorbachev. But nevertheless, that's a good example of if you bring society to this materialistic, sterile political plane where it's all about efficiency, utility, all about running the ship very... Uh, perfectly without any of these uh, colorful components and these kind of theories about reality, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get society falling apart. And in the end, 
you're going to have even the lives of saints questioned, which I think, I mean, most of these folks running in the right wing, they are Protestant. In fact, I doubt many of them would listen to myself and Conrad discuss ideas such as, you know, Third Rome or some of the saint miracles or uh, some of the extra eighth-hour content we release. This may seem like nonsense to some people. I think that's the danger there is... If we completely disconnect the spiritual from the material, we, we do end up making room for other malicious uh, malicious things to, I guess, enter into the into our mind space. Like, you know, a, a void doesn't really exist, you know. As soon as you reject the spiritual, something else will take its place, and that something else will probably be demonic. Yeah, and as far as the UFO thing, you know, we kind of, you may know where we stand as far as a Seraphim Rosian interpretation. Look, where the anything that isn't, those who say, Obviously, we're not denying the reality of experimental technology, military deception, but insofar as, I mean, if you just look into Jack Parsons and his history, frankly, I mean, the intersection between the highest levels of the government and these technologists and, frankly, demonic entities isn't far-fetched. It's quite direct. And insofar as there is any reality to these phenomenons, it, they are demonic in nature insofar as people that are subject to them are often repeated subjects and are kind of, you know, possessed in ways. And, you know, the aerial phenomenon, you know, manifests itself in ways very similar to, you know, someone like St. Martin of Tours. There's a lot of stories through, I believe, Gravantis, a good friend of ours on his YouTube channel, The Tabellion, is coming out with a video about the direct parallels between a lot of the modern UFO phenomena and actual lives of saints throughout history of Christianity. And... It's important, you know, I recommend everyone read Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future, the UFO Phenomenon by Father Spirit on Bailey, and, you know, actually understand the, the roots of this phenomenon before just saying, uh, ortho bros think UFOs are demons, this is a psyop distraction, like, no, it's actually a, whether you want to deny it, I think a lot of these right-wing people are incapable of kind of, for even a second, looking at the world as an anthropologist, as in any objective manner, and being like, whether, whether we like this or not, this is a phenomenon that's being discussed. It's occurring in some capacity, especially throughout the 20th century. And it's better to just place it somewhere in your worldview. And then, you know, maybe you can afford to not talk about it too much, especially once it's placed. But if you're just going to let it sit there, then, of course, it's going to be kind of a source of chaos in your movement because you're not providing any kind of, you know, basic explanation for... I mean, it's the same thing with the space thing. A lot of people, like, you know, people know my opinions on space and people act like... When I make when I talk about it all, they're like, "Why are you making this such a big deal?" It's like, "What oh, you're going to pretend that if space isn't real, and like that we have a local sun and moon, that that isn't like a big effing deal." I'm sorry, like you know, like is that like are we going to pretend that that doesn't actually matter? Like, you know, I, I was listening to people say like, "Well, I guess it'll matter if aliens come and visit." Well, it's like, well, you know, like obviously this disclosure stuff is being slow walked, so you know it's important to I think be ahead of this and realize that. I mean, look, I've done a thread on this. Read some Philip K. Dick books. Read, you know, something like Childhood's End. It's very obvious that the the narrative of the space visitors will be used to, just like, you know, these world wars and these mass evils were used to subsume us into world government and things like the United Nations and forces like NATO. So too will the alien visitors be used to subsume us from a world of national identities to a world of a global planetary identity. And, you know, that is, you know, literally what you could call the end result of globalization. Yeah, that's right. I mean, generally speaking, I think we're not exactly against speaking about certain subjects, even if we disagree about them, frankly. I, I think we're welcome to, like some of the guests we've had online, we don't exactly agree with everything they've said, they've said. But I think the main 
the main point of uh, this statement, this, I guess, disclaimer myself and Conrad are making is that simply trying to sterilize the right wing, especially the English speaking right wing at the moment, is probably not the way to go. As, you know, it's, it's correct that we, it is a big umbrella movement in that, you know, there's a lot of us here and we all don't follow the same religion, but in order to sterilize it against all religiosity and to sort of create the separation of church and state, the eventual uh, the end of that will be negative, I believe, because yes, uh, we won't all become Roman Catholic, and I doubt everybody will convert to Orthodox Christianity, and definitely won't become pagan like the Baptists or, uh, or you know, Protestant such as like, Scott Gray. Or, but yeah, we I, I believe there definitely needs to be some sort of consensus, and consensus just consensus on the basic issues such as like, okay, are we anti anti-abortion, anti-feminist, anti? anti-alphabet community all of these things and we don't need to exactly agree on all these various subjects i think that's there's no need to uh, necessarily come to this overarching agreement uh, like the russian political sphere and the smo i think bringing it back to the major geopolitical conflict at the moment what do we see in russia right now we see these various people working together all these various battalions and groups in Novorossiya, in donbass and they don't necessarily all agree the chechens don't agree with wagner but nevertheless they're working side by side so i think it's definitely possible for us english speakers in the right wing sphere to still collaborate without um burning any bridges yeah, space is fake. Aliens are demons. You know what I'm saying. But yeah, I think we're coming. We're coming close to the end of the episode here. You know, I guess anything else to say? I mean, just we talked about the war going on. There's a lot of very expensive Western equipment. You know, Iris T SLM systems. You know, Patriot missiles. Some of these others being destroyed now. Of course, these very expensive tanks. I mean, some of these things are in the realm of 200 to 500 million dollars per battery not including each missile that may or may not have been inside of it so i mean these are big big losses that if ukraine it makes sense that look i understand that there's a lot of you know 16 dhs from multiple intelligence agencies going on here but at the end of the day if ukraine gets nothing done with billions of dollars worth of equipment the people that gave them at their that equipment are going to be like what the hell so if you have anything else to say dimitri uh, i think we're ready to wind this down only that i'm glad the united states is you know uh, in up the debt ceiling and in fact the america will not go into a default because you know right the show can go on the circus can continue and of course content will also continue to flow because the, the great hegemon of the world the unipolar master and the the gae will continue to reign supreme because there's no way right, a country with that much power and authority can kind of just simply go bankrupt right due to the debt they owe so the debt ceiling will certainly enter into the 40 trillion mark by the end of the 2020s right by the end of the decade there's no doubt about that especially what you just based on what you just told me like the 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 money you just have to look at the price tag of each individual Patriot missile system, all of these HIMARS uh, artillery systems, as well as some of the tanks. Uh, and it's just, it's shocking. And in fact, the tanks are definitely there on the ground and they may be crossing the border into the Russian territory. Basically any minute now, any hour, the counteroffensive will begin in full. And in fact, we'll just have to kind of look out and see what will occur. Will the American taxpayer dollars go to waste or will they actually achieve the goals that they're after and uh, take back this territory from the Russians, I guess? It's all kind of in the air at the moment, but we'll definitely be watching and you guys will hear about this on the next episode. Yeah, here in Texas, we're, I'm pretty ready to just be out of the whole United States meme. I mean, the FBI is coming after our attorney general pretty hard for, you know, just being a patriot. 
you know, they're going after people that he had, you know, there's, there's business scandal, people are trying to impeach him in the House and the Senate, and then the FBI comes in and politically arrests one of these business associates of his. It's really pretty despicable stuff, you know, the, and you know, I've, you know, it's a long shot, but you know, as much as I support greater Idaho, I'm also a supporter of Texas, you know, the Texas nationalist movement, you know, has a lot of ground here in Texas. So, you know, looking into that but with all that being said you know worldwarnow.substack.com everybody you know that's the home base expect big things on there articles from dimitri articles from me you know more episodes ether hours coming soon subscribe you know just seven dollars a month on the substack gets access to all of our premium content and you know there's a free trial there's all sorts of options for you be sure to follow us on twitter world war now underscore follow me at gnomrad gnomrad follow dimitri at ocanonist Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. That's a great place to stay up to date with everything going on on the ground in Ukraine. And with all that being said, God bless everyone. I hope everyone had a fantastic Pentecost and is able to enjoy the summertime season. See you, everybody. Bye-bye.